The words that I'd like to direct your attention to this afternoon are found once again in the book of Mark. And we'll be reading Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35, and read through verse 45. Mark 10, 35 to 45. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? They said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit right on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Please pray with me. Christ, again, we pray for grace. Grace to understand and not just to understand, but to apply your word. Lord, as we examine your life, even as it's recorded in the Gospel of Mark, we have increased in our love and admiration and our worship of You. And we want to be like You. Not just imagine ourselves to be like You, but to truly love like You loved and to serve like You served and to be like You and follow You. In all things. And I pray that you would use this word to bring about that end. And Father, there is anyone here who does not yet know you. Who is not compelled to follow your son in light of who he is and what he has done. That their eyes might be opened to see your glory. And they would follow you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The greatest ambition of the Greek heroes and the Greek tragedies and Greek mythology, the the greatest ambition of the Greeks was kleos, honor and glory. That's what kleos means. It was the glory that was achieved by the Homeric heroes who often died in violent and dramatic deaths. 
on the field of battle. But this was not just something that was handed to a person. Kleos was something that needed to be pursued. Often a great personal sacrifice. In fact, in the Iliad, Achilles is quoted famously as saying, My mother Thetis tells me that there are two ways in which I, I may meet my end. If I stay here and fight, I will not return alive, but my name will live on forever. Kleos. Whereas if I go home, my name will die, but it will be long ere death shall take me. And this was the, the tension that the Greek heroes faced. They could either choose to die young and gloriously or have their name live on in glory forever. Or they could live long, humble lives and die as anonymous old men. And it wasn't just the Greeks. Throughout history, men have been dominated by this desire for glory, this desire to exalt themselves, to make a name for themselves. It's part of human nature to want to be recognized, to want to be admired and esteemed. And just ask yourself, how is it that you want to be remembered? What is it that you want people to say of you in your eulogy? How do you want people to remember you? How, what, what impact do you desire to make upon this world? And how do you hope to achieve your ambitions? Well, the passage before us gives explicit instructions on how one might achieve kleos or honor glory. And what it shows us is that you don't need to be famous. You don't need to be wealthy. You don't need to be strong. You just need to have a heart that's willing to die to yourself and sacrificially serve Christ in His church. So such honor really is available to everyone here who would choose to seek it. Let's see how Jesus explains this to us. This simple outline to divide the, the, the story into two sections. The first where the disciples ask for honor. And then Jesus teaches explicitly how that honor is required, acquired. So let's look first at the disciples' request for honor. In verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us what we ask of you. Much like our children will sometimes ask, Mom, Dad, will you give me such and such? Well, what is it that you want? Well, just tell me if you'll give it to me first. Well, that's more or less what the sons of Zebedee do. But they tell him, Grant that we may sit on your right and on your left. And very simply, what the disciples were asking for was positions of honor. They wanted to be the number two and the number three people behind Jesus in the kingdom. They wanted to have elite power and authority and honor. And so they boldly asked him for it. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus say, ask and you shall receive? Seek and you shall find? 
mean, they're taking a page right out of the word of faith movement and they're naming it and claiming it. And they're saying, we want this, Jesus. But the fact that the disciples feel this need to ask for this honor really demonstrates how much they don't really understand what will mark those who will receive such honor. As if jockeying for position and playing politics is what's going to receive honor in the kingdom of heaven. But before we pour out too much scorn on them, we just need to be honest with ourselves. And how often we have done something similar. We have sought positions of honor and authority that we might be exalted. We've asked, how can I get my name in lights? Or how can I be remembered? Or maybe it's just, how can I get so-and-so to notice me? And to think that I'm special. And in the world, those ambitious for glory... They need to be aggressive. They need to be assertive. Because if they're not, somebody else is going to be and somebody else is going to get what they're seeking. In the world, this is how such leadership positions are acquired. Through politicking and, and, and dropping names and asserting yourself, expressing how great you are and how much better you are than everybody else around you. But Jesus says that's not... How it's done in the kingdom. That's not how eternal glory is achieved. And that's why he says to his disciples, you don't know what you're asking. That is, they don't understand what it's actually going to take to get those positions of honor. They don't really understand the cost. They think it can be attained by just playing the the friendship card with Jesus. Politicking. But such honor can only come at an unbelievable price. One which they don't understand. A price that they would not be willing to pay if they actually knew what it was. That's why he asks, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with I am, which I am baptized? And of course, Jesus isn't being explicit here, but they should know what he's talking about because we, as we've seen in the last few chapters of Mark, Jesus repeated it three times. I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed. So they should know what he's saying here. The cup just is a metaphor, just like baptism, for Jesus' death. But they don't understand, and that's why they're so quickly able to affirm that they're willing to. Yeah, we're willing and we're able to do, to take on this cup and baptism. And the implications of Jesus' response to them is that honor in the kingdom is achieved through selfless sacrifice. Not by just coming to me and making a bold request, but if you want such honor, you need to follow me where I am going. And he knows they're not ready yet. And then he asks the question, are you able? And they say, we are able. But the very, the very fact that they're coming to him asking this question shows that they're not. Because that honor is going to be reserved for those who selflessly seek to serve Christ in his kingdom, not for those who are doing it for themselves. 
The very fact that they're thinking about themselves shows that they aren't ready. They're not able, nor will they be willing if they actually understood what Jesus is saying. They don't understand the cost. But Jesus knows that one day they'll understand. And one day they will be able. In fact, James was the first of the apostles to be martyred. Acts 12.2 Herod had him hunted down and beheaded. John was the last. He probably escaped martyrdom. But he died in his 90s on exile doing hard labor on the island of Patmos. And previous to that, he'd been thrown into a vat of boiling oil and survived. They learned what it meant to follow Christ. But the honor that they seek, Jesus says, won't be granted to them through politicking. The honor that they seek, Jesus says, in fact, he himself doesn't even know who will receive it. He says that's been reserved for those prepared by my Father. And even if Jesus had told us who would eventually receive those seats in the kingdom, the highest honor for their selfless and sacrificial Service, I don't think any of us would even know who they were because of the criteria. Those honors aren't going to be given probably to anybody that we know because it's not going to be given to those who are seeking to be known. The honor will be based not on achievement, but selfless love. It'll be based on a person's heart. And this is essentially what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 4. Remember the Corinthians were fighting about who was going to be the greatest among themselves. That's where all this division in the Corinthian church came from was, was self-exaltation. And Paul just uses the whole letter to just expose their pride. But here in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he says tells them not to pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God, not from one another. He says, because we think we have the ability to see what's, who's going to be honored by God. But the reality is God's going to honor people not because of what impresses us, but what's really impressive. A selfless and sacrificial and loving heart. And he says, so don't, don't think that you can go and even make that assessment. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Such honor will be given to those who from the heart don't seek to exalt themselves. They just love Christ and they want to love his body and they will sacrificially serve to meet their needs. So again, it's not given to those who will minister for self-advancement. Not like the medieval monks who would seek to make a name for themselves and prove how godly and holy they were by being ascetics like Simon the Stylite who I think it was for 39 years 
lived on a pillar to prove how dead to the world and the flesh he was. But it was all for pride. It was all that people might flock to him and just stand in awe of how gloriously sacrificial he was. It was all pride. He wasn't serving anybody but himself. And such honor will be given to those who are, who are driven by little to no self-interest in their ministries. They're not thinking, this is what I want to do. This is what's in it for me. This will allow me to have this position or that position or this authority or this influence. They're just thinking about what's the need? How can I meet it? And it will also be given to those not just who desire or have a heart to serve, selflessly, but those who actually do something, those who actually sacrifice. He didn't say, didn't just say, are you willing and able to drink this, but will you do it? And they do, of course, receive the cup and baptism as they, they die for Christ and suffer for him. But such honor will not be given to those who simply can imagine themselves being faithful. What, what Tim Kazee calls Walter Mitty Christians. If you've seen the movie, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, there's two versions, an older one and a newer one. It's all about this guy who has vivid imaginations of great things that he's going to do, but he, it's all in his mind. He actually leads a fairly mundane life. And I, and I think Christians can often be the same way. We can imagine ourselves doing great things for the Lord, speaking boldly for Him, preaching to thousands, people standing in awe, or singing worship songs, and everybody's just captivated by God, or laying our life down on the mission field. We can have great imaginations of the great things we're going to do for the Lord. And yet we have the hardest time just making it to church on time. As an entertainment-saturated people, we're very often in danger of this. We can read missionary biographies and, again, dream of serving on the mission field. But we, we have a hard time just making it to community group. We can imagine ourselves giving our lives for the Lord, yet just if somebody were to tell us to give more than 10% to, to, to Christ, we would think that's outrageous. We can imagine enduring years of service for Christ, and yet we can't persevere praying more than ten minutes for our fellow believers. We need to recognize we're not what we imagine ourselves to be. We are what we are. Where we spent our time this week, where, where our mind went this week, where we spent our money, that shows what we're really devoted to. And I think, again, because we're an entertainment-saturated people, it's easy for us to live in our imaginations. Imagine ourselves being these great Christians, and in fact, we've, we do or do very little for our Lord. But then you have missionaries like Hudson Taylor and David Livingstone who do sacrifice all of their life, wealth, whatever it is, for the sake of Christ in this church. And they say things like, I never made a sacrifice. Both those men said that. 
Livingstone went to Africa. Taylor went to China. I never made a sacrifice. How can they say that? I don't think they're lying. I think they can say that because for a person who realizes what Christ has done for them, it's not a sacrifice. Death to self in this world isn't actually a sacrifice to a Christian. It's freedom. It's selfishness and greed and lust and all the tentacles of the world that wrap around our hearts. That's what enslaves us. That's what quenches our courage. That's what quenches our joy and our delight and our boldness and our courage. It's the world. It's not the gospel. It's not serving Christ. That doesn't, that doesn't enslave you. It sets you free. They were living as free men. They didn't make a sacrifice because they had been set free. And the one who Christ sets free is free indeed. Saying no to self isn't a sacrifice for Christians. It's freedom. And that's why Paul exults in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, that I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and even considered as rubbish. He's not, he's not groveling there. He's delighting. I've gotten rid of all of it. It has no bind on me. My life, all I own, all I want is Christ, Christ, Christ. For me to live is Christ. And die, it's gain. That's freedom, brothers and sisters. And that's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He he was the prince of Egypt when it was a world empire. He would rather be mistreated with the people of God. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking for a greater reward. And then a few verses later, the author of Hebrews Talks about other Christians. He says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Of whom the world was not worthy. I mean, after hearing that being read, what people sacrifice for the sake of their God, let me ask you, would you still rather receive honor in this life or honored in the life to come and to hear the Lord pronounce of you Everyone, I want you to see my son or my daughter. This is one of whom the world was not worthy. But such an honor will not come through 
simply asking for it or dreaming or imagining or politicking, such honor will come at a high cost. You will have to die to yourself and you'll have to sacrificially serve. And often that means serving people who don't appreciate you, who don't respect you, don't admire you, people often that are mean and cruel and selfish, but you do it because you love them and you love Christ. And in some instances, it might be people who downright hate you and will kill you, but you do it because you love Christ and his opinion versus the honor that come from men. Well, Jesus continues to teach the disciples how this honor is acquired in verses 42 to 45. And he begins by contrasting the pursuit of honor in the world with that which is found in the kingdom. He says it's not acquired in the way that people of the world acquire honor. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. You see, the disciples, they want to be the greatest. They want to be the men in charge. They want to be at the, the top of the pyramid or the top of the political food chain. They want the people under them to serve them, to elevate their name, to meet their needs, to extol their greatness. Because that's the way they see it happening in the world. The people under you are meant for you to use to make yourself look good or to make life easier or more pleasant for you. That's how the world works. They use people to exalt their own greatness, like Pharaoh, who use the slaves to build monuments and pyramids and temples to exalt his name. But Jesus says it's not this way among you. In fact, such a mentality is the exact opposite of what will be honored in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Verse 44, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. So instead of being given to selfish ambition, such honor will be given to those who selflessly serve. See, those who seek greatness will serve others. So we're diakonos, where we get the word deacon. But those who want to be first will be slave of all. It's the word doulos. It means slave. Slave of all. And that's why Paul taught the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look out to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, this thinking, this mentality among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of servant, doulos, slave, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul is saying the very thing that Jesus is teaching his disciples here. Stop thinking about self. Get rid of every vestige that says, what's in it for me? What do I want? And, and learn to think, what are these, how does Christ want me to serve? How can I care for this person's needs? And Paul takes his own medicine, for he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more of them. And Paul's whole mentality was, what are their needs? In fact, in that passage, he's talking about, I, I gave up my right to be paid as a servant of God. I gave up my right to take along a spouse. I gave up my right to this. He's not thinking of his rights like we in our culture, especially in the 21st century, want to do. Demand our rights. What's in it for me? Now, maybe it's legitimate to demand our rights if it will help extol the, serve the kingdom somehow. But we are so immersed in self-centeredness. The last thing that we would want to give up is our rights. It's just, it's just the opposite of what Christ is teaching here. What Paul cares about is seeing people get saved and seeing people grow in Christ's likeness. And that's, that's what the disciples should have cared about. And the reality is serving Christ in this world is it's like standing on an escalator going in two different directions. You have one escalator going up and one escalator going down and you're straddling both of them. And the escalator going up, it's like you're seeking to serve Christ. You plant your foot there. You're you're wanting to serve him and his interests But then you place your foot on the other escalator going down and you're thinking self-centered thoughts. What's in it for me? How can I do get what I want, protect myself, extol my own greatness? And you're going, you're either going to be torn apart or you're going to fall flat on your face. You can't have both the world and its glory and its ambitions and serve Christ. It doesn't work. And I think, I think the reason so many Christians, obviously not in every case, but so many Christians, and especially pastors, one of the reasons they're often so depressed and discouraged and joyless is because they're trying to do both. They want the world and all its glory and notoriety, and they want to look like they're serving Christ, but it's still themselves. But then they're, they're trying to serve Christ at times and, and, they're, and they're, their heart is being torn in two different directions and they don't realize it. And so they're discouraged and they're lifeless and depressed. Greatness will be based upon selfless service. Again, seeking to meet the needs of Christ and His bride, the church. And now again, when we hear the word service and needs, I think what often comes to our mind is, is practical things. Serving in music ministry or in the nursery or hosting a community group or um, cooking meals for somebody. 
All things that are, that are genuine needs. But I think more than practically what people need, what the church needs, is their spiritual needs to be met. Like people need to hear the gospel. They need to hear how they can be saved. People need to hear that they're loved. Not based upon what you can do for them, but based upon just the fact that they're made in the image of God. People need to be prayed for. Do you pray for the other members of the body of Christ? We have more need to be prayed for than we have for practical needs within the church. Then our needs primarily are spiritual needs. We have other needs, of course, too. But praying is something all of us can do. And so when it comes to serving the church, don't think, how can I help this church become like celebrity mega church that everybody knows about? Don't, don't let that be the example and the model. Instead, think, how can I help my brothers and sisters grow in faithfulness to following Christ? How can I encourage them? How can I support them? How can I help even confront them if necessary? What can I do to help them be faithful followers of Christ? And when people in the church have this mindset, this is what it looks like. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's a world of love. In fact, Edwards wrote this great, Jonathan Edwards wrote this great essay called Heaven is a World of Love. Well, the church should be somewhat of, a, of an example of what heaven will be like. This is how the church should function. If you desire greatness, stop seeking your own interests and devote your, your heart fully to selfless and sacrificial service to the church. Well, you might be saying, well, honestly, Joseph, I don't want to be great. In fact, I, I'll be content just to live my life and... Go into obscurity. But think about, again, what Jesus is wanting the disciples to do. Jesus doesn't condemn them for wanting to be great, if they understood what greatness was. He has no problem appointing the second and third seats to those who deserve it. All of us should desire Christ-like greatness. In fact, it's more arrogant to say, I don't desire that greatness, than to desire it. It's more arrogant to say, well, I just, want to live for my, I just want to live for myself during this life and do my own thing. And you know what? I'll be okay with mediocre reward in the kingdom of heaven. That's selfish. That's proud. Because it's about yourself. What you're saying is, I don't desire greatness because I'm proud. No, we, all of us, 
if we grasp what Christ has done for us, all of us should hunger for this to be said of us. Because it's again, it's not about us. It's about serving him in light of what he's done for us. Because Jesus is the quintessential example. Look at Mark 10, 45. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the key verse in the whole book of Mark. You can summarize the book of Mark in this verse. Jesus is the most glorious being in all of creation. In his nature, he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise and adoration. Even if he never did take on flesh and become a man. Even if he did not die on the cross. Even if he just continued to exist within the Trinity, in heaven, sovereign, he would still be worthy of all glory and honor and worship. We need to remember who this Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and all things in him hold together. That's who Jesus is. We need to remember that Jesus is the very one that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, high and lifted up on a throne, whom angels were surrounding and proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. And he was so glorious that those angels had to cover their eyes lest they look upon him. This is the same Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, doesn't this expose just the utter wretched arrogance that we have in our hearts when an opportunity comes to serve and we think, oh, that's beneath me. Well, that's not what I want to do. Well, that's not convenient for me. The firstborn of all creation, the very God of very God, took on flesh and died for you. How could any Christian ever say, that is beneath me? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And not only was He willing to serve, He was willing to give His life as a ransom for many. The word ransom refers to the price of a slave's freedom. And we know that whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. John 8.34 And we also know that the soul that sins must die. Not just physical death. They must die spiritually. They must be They must be exposed to the wrath of God for all eternity for their rebellion against him. And all men are sinners. There is no one righteous, no, not one. All of us deserve God's wrath. And Jesus rescued us by being willing to pay the penalty that we deserve. 
Because he understood if he didn't relinquish his rights and take on flesh and suffer as a human being, ultimately on the cross, none of us would be saved. Neither you nor I, nor our children, nor our friends, nor our family would have any reason to smile ever again. And our very existence would be a curse if he hadn't been willing to suffer in our place. And so now if we believe in him, we can be set free from our slavery to sin and the wrath of God. And we show that by following him. Following him, leaving this life of self-exaltation that's so prevalent in the world and instead seeking to serve Christ and his bride. And so if you recognize who Jesus is, the son of God, the firstborn of all creation, and you realize what he did, not just what he promised to do, but what he actually did. What wouldn't you do for him? I mean, what wouldn't you do for him? As I think it was Isaac Watts that said, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. C.T. said, the missionary to China said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to give to him. Again, Jesus didn't just provide a ransom for you, but for many, for your family, for your friends, your co-workers and neighbors. All, all that they need to, to know is that he's done it. Well, how are they going to know unless somebody goes to tell them? So tell them. Tell them what Jesus has done for them. Tell them they can be set free from their love of self and the empty glory of this life and actually live for something that will be eternally glorious. Tell them. Tell them. But how will they hear unless one is sent? How will they hear unless there's a preacher? And if they hear what you're saying to them, if they truly believe what Jesus did for them and what they deserved, then they will show their belief by wanting to follow him. And nothing, nothing, nothing will get in the way of their desire to follow him. He will be preeminent in their hearts. They will love him more than father or mother or sister or brother or friend or themselves. He will mean everything to them. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all died, that we might not live any longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Highest honor in the kingdom of heaven, therefore, will be provided for those who selflessly and sacrificially Serve Christ and his bride. Who no longer live for themselves, but for him and his church. The missionary martyr, Nate Saint. 
who was, his life was commemorated in the movie The End of the Spear, said this, People who do not know the Lord ask why in the world we would waste our lives as missionaries. But they, they too forget that they're expending their lives. And when the bubble has burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for all the years they've wasted. And his colleague and fellow martyr at the very same moment, Jim Elliott, as you know, wrote these words too. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, again, it is easy for us to express a a, a desire, maybe an ambition to be a greater follower of you. But God, we're so weak because we so often excuse our selfishness and our pride for all sorts of horrible excuses. Lord, we're often more worldly than Christian. And I pray that you would root out the depth of worldliness and selfishness and pride that so often pervades our heart. Open our eyes to to recognize once again what you've done for us. That we would have no excuses any longer to not willingly do anything that you might call us to do. That we would think of no person beneath us. but But truly, truly think of everyone else as above us. And that we would seek to be Low, not so that people would admire us for our humility, but simply so that we could be better vessels to be able to be useful to you and to truly meet their needs. And God, we ask this because we can't will such love and such selfish, selflessness to exist in our hearts. We need you to do a miracle. So God, as the pastor of this church, I beg you, do a miracle in us. Make us like this. And I I know it'll come with a cost. But even with a cost, make us like this. For your glory and for your honor are fully deserving at any cost. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.